0: Welcome to the Urban Inside podcast from Sweeco. Welcome to the Urban Inside podcast. We're looking at Overshoot Day, the day in which we've used the world's global resources for a year. This day has been created, if you like, to highlight that we're using more resources than our planet can handle. And the way we live in some parts of the world makes it look like we have three or four planets at our disposal, but we've only got the one, Andreas Yellenhammer, our Head of Sustainability at Suico. How can we push back that date?
1: Oh, it's a super question. It's a central question for for sustainable development. I I like the the concept of the World Overshoot Day because it's very pedagogic in that sense that it explains that we are overusing the world's resources. Uh, However, I would say it also, when you come down to the scientific level, we have planetary boundaries and there are more actionable concepts. But it's a a way to to start the conversation that I really like. And and in order to push it back, of course, we need to to stay within the planetary boundaries. That's basically what we do. About 60% of the overshoot is in carbon. So we know we have the agenda there and we'll keep on going. It's it's harder when we start to think about uh, food and and the other types of emissions. Then we really need to focus on, on circular economy, I would say. That kind of capture what is done. But there's also uh, a a lot of of justice in the World Overshoot Day, that we compare countries and see that the resources are unevenly distributed on the earth. So, for example, even though Sweden would reach one, it's it's probably not a a good mark for the rest of the countries. We need to think of it globally, and and the the only thing that counts for for the earth, our only home, and and the atmosphere is to, to work on this together.
0: And that, I guess, is a really tricky thing, because you're talking about the entire globe's countries where some really have almost no overshoot day, whereas others, yeah, they've met the overshoot day already in in March or April. How do you get that sort of cooperation to...
1: That's okay. right. And especially the, the developing countries and poor countries, they are are within planetary boundaries in many senses. But you can also say they don't want to stay there because they want to become more advanced. Uh, for me, this is the, the sustainable development goals. It's the agenda that we do together. So uh, I used to use uh, the, the overshoot day as a conversation starter for, for the SDGs.
0: Right. OK. But I guess then presumably if there is no overshoot day, that means we have a truly circular global economy.
1: Uh, In essence, and in theory, yes. It's, It's more complex than that, but we can aim for it, and that would take us a very good way in the right direction.
0: So, Andreas talked about planetary boundaries. There are nine of them that we must stay within if we want to keep the world in a stable state.
2: We've also identified that we've crossed um, six of those boundaries.
0: Owen Gaffney is a writer, but also a global sustainability analyst at the Stockholm Resilience Centre.
2: They relate to climate change, obviously, biodiversity, biogeochemical cycles, our use of nitrogen and phosphorus in fertilisers, for example, land use. But also more recently novel entities things like plastics and water and um, we've gone beyond those boundaries as well so we need to stay within those um those nine boundaries um, for a sustainable future
0: owen gaffney is about to come out with a book called earth for all where he's interviewed leading economists and worked with scientists systems dynamics modelers and figured out what has to happen for us to prevent overshoot day from happening what do we need to do to get ourselves back within the planetary boundaries
2: five Extraordinary turnarounds. It is on energy, it's the food system turnaround, but it's also on poverty, gender equity and inequality. Those five in parallel, if we make an extraordinary effort this decade and for the next, next few decades, then we can achieve that goal.
0: All five of those need to happen simultaneously, or we need to make huge transformative change within those five areas for the planet to survive. I mean, how, how are they interlinked? Well, you talked about like gender uh, equality, is an area, but which is needed for the planet's survival.
2: Yeah, so we're, we're with all of these areas. So when you look at the energy system, you know that's the basis of the global economy. It needs to transform rapidly within the next few decades. But this must be done fairly. If it, what we find is, you know, in France with the gilets jaunes, the Yellow Vest's protests, when if you just slap on, you know, high taxes on um, diesel, for example, the public rejects it because it's not fair. They they feel as if they're unjustly penalized. And in fact, the highest emissions globally are, are coming from the one percent. The richest people on earth. So, we, unless we address the inequality issue, then we're not going to get the energy transformation we want. Governments won't have the trust of
0: the people. And we need that for that to, to happen. We need more re- redistribution of wealth. This podcast, we're looking at particularly uh, Overshoot Day. Based on those five transformations, I mean, can we uh, get rid of overshoot day? Can we push that date back if we if we work with those five transformations or, or or how would we do it?
2: Yeah, so this this is the big question. So um, at what point do we not have an overshoot day? And we would argue we we can do it by 2050. Um, so within thirty years, a single generation, uh, the the key changes we need to make are on uh, you know our energy system, and this this means halving greenhouse gas emissions. Every decade, but it also means on agriculture uh, to get to to zero emissions by t- 2030 and then we need to start pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere um, and have that long-term storage of carbon um, to get that uh, stabilization of carbon dioxide but at the same time we need to you know to, uh, if we're serious about overshoot we need to also protect biodiversity you know we're in this the midst of a sixth mass extinction of life on earth that has to be reversed by 2030 because every decade We don't act. We're reducing the resilience
0: of the planet. Now, when you look at it this way, it seems impossible. But Owen Gaffney thinks it isn't. He thinks it's feasible to prevent overshoot day and that there aren't even economic challenges anymore with this.
2: That is the really good news here, that it, um, it is technically feasible and socially it's feasible as well. And uh, these sorts of transformations will improve people's lives, we'll have more livable cities, we'll be eating healthy diets. Um, so it's very attractive um, and it's economically feasible, increasingly economically feasible. You know, um, electric cars uh, are reaching a tipping point now, for example, they're, they're, they're becoming socially acceptable um, and we're scaling on solar and wind very, very rapidly. If we keep on the pace we're at, you know, we will we will reach the targets we need to reach by 2030 and by 2040 so it is feasible but there are many roadblocks on the way and many shocks that slow down progress and uh, and this is the this is our concern
0: roadblocks and shocks then what kind of roadblocks are we talking about what's stopping us collaboration is one thing how do you get your Local politician working with a national elected politician and get them aligned with a business that wants to do one thing while another business in another industry wants to do something completely different. And then you've got lobby groups and associations and charities and the general public. And as we heard in our previous podcast about going circular in Europe, everyone has to be a part of this. So how do they collaborate? Well, there's an organisation called ICLEI, I-C-L-E-I. It's a global network of more than 2,500 local and regional governments committed to sustainability. And well, collaboration is their thing. They work with what they call pathways.
3: The pathways are a way to structure our work, um, because defining urban sustainability is not an easy task. Guinard. I'm a senior officer at the global headquarter of ICLEI. So we have five pathways, um, basically encouraging local governments in our network to work towards an urban development that is low carbon, nature-based and biodiverse, that is resilient, that is socially equitable, and that is circular. And that's my focus, basically.
0: So let's get down then to that circular development (laughs) pathway. I mean, how do you help cities or regions go circular?
3: The way we work is uh, through projects to uh, support concrete action on the ground. That's one part of the work. The other part of the work is to represent the interest and voice of our members in the global arena. So for instance, at the UN Climate Change Conferences, um, so to really bring the voice of cities to the global stage.
0: To give us a concrete idea as to how ICLEI works and how to make collaboration work, Marion Gunnar talked us through one of the cities she spent the last few years working with, Turku, in Finland.
3: They are used to say that they are the oldest and boldest uh, city in Finland, and <laughs> that's because... They have set quite some ambitious goals for themselves, one of them being to become carbon neutral by 2029, um, which is a huge undertaking, but they're not stopping there. They also want the city and the surrounding region to become circular by 2040. So we've been engaging in the Circular Toku project for the past three years and a half and worked with the city to create uh, the Circular Toku roadmap, which is essentially mapping transition steps to make five sectors waste in the city
0: what sectors are they just out of interest or i don't know if you have them off the top of your head but it would be interesting to know
3: i do have them having okay. worked on it for the last three years <laughs> <laughs> um, they're more like thematic areas rather than economic sectors in the traditional uh, sense okay. so they are food system water cycles energy system buildings and construction and mobility and logistics
0: okay and are they going to do it i mean can they get those sectors and then all of Turkey to be a carbon neutral by 2029 as you say but then completely circular by 2040 that's the earliest I've heard so far
3: yeah it is the earliest that I've I've heard of as well and I think there's something important to differentiate here there's something there are areas that the city can influence directly that are under the direct scope of influence of the city they relate to urban planning procurement um, and additional policies and there are other aspects that they only have an indirect influence um around and for this the city really collaborated with a lot of stakeholders across sectors across level of government or governance so more than 200 stakeholders were involved in the creation of this roadmap mm. and essentially you can't really have a guarantee for success when you have an indirect impact you can only have chances of success. Yes. And for this collaboration is essential. And I think Tokyo really achieved this.
0: Okay. So in, I- examples of what they're doing today, as you were saying, could be replicated in other cities. So are there any like, particular things or common themes that you feel this could work in other cities?
3: Fundamentally, what I think is, is most impressive and important is the innovation related to governance and to working across different city departments with different actors of different sectors. And this can be replicated across all region, regardless of level of development of, or engagement in the circular economy.
0: But that's really interesting because that must be key when it comes to circularity, that you're getting different silos, as it were, or other parts of an organization to actually start working together, because that seems to me to be the, the huge challenge in, in creating cities or, or regions to be, to be circular.
3: Yeah, that's not unique to circularity. That's can be, the same can be said about all types of sustainability challenges. But because circular economy is about closing loops and, you know, having some waste streams becoming resources for other sectors, it's particularly essential to facilitate this cross-sectoral collaboration.
0: So the Turku model could be used in helping other cities go circular and push back overshoot day. In fact, ICLE now has a tool available for cities to help them create a roadmap and help them understand what it really means.
3: So we partnered, um, we want a talk of collaboration with, uh, so we partnered with four other organisations, including UN Environment, Circle Economy, Metabolic and the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, to design a framework that unpacks what the circular economy is at the city level and how it can be applied through different policy instruments. And we're currently working with Circular Economy economy um, on an online tool that allows a city to do essentially a gap analysis on where they stand on this framework for a specific sector or thematic area of their choice and what could be done um, based on examples from other cities.
0: Okay, and Is that an easy tool to use or will it take a lot of training for for cities to get up and running using a, using a tool like this?
3: It's uh, designed to be easy and, and time efficient um, because we've seen Um, massive capacity constraints in cities were asked to deliver on so many topics so we wanted to design a tool that's really easy for anyone
0: That's the kind of tool the city of Glasgow in Scotland would have loved to use when they started their journey six years ago Are the bagpipes too much? Oh I couldn't resist Glasgow then, 1.8 million people by the River Clyde in Scotland's western lowlands with a rich legacy in industry and engineering. Shipbuilding was once a major business here. Apparently a fifth of all the ships in the world were made in Glasgow back in the early 1900s. Well, now it's making a name for itself again for going circular. My name is Alison McCree.
4: I'm a director of strategic partnership. No, I'm not. (laughs) Oh, God, you I can see that. I can see this is going to be one of these days, right? Okay, more coffee, more coffee.
0: She's the senior director in the Glasgow Chamber of Commerce, and she's also responsible for a group within the chamber called Circular Glasgow.
4: And my role basically encompasses a suite of strategic partnerships. So, what what I do is look for opportunities where the business community can benefit, but also the city can benefit. So, the work in Circular Glasgow. Was born because of our interests in the circular economy, and I suppose in the very first instance, some six years ago, when we started discussions, it was because we saw an opportunity for innovation for the business community. So, tell me, I mean that that you saw
0: this innovation because or this opportunity. I mean, what what did you see, and then how has that developed then?
4: Well, obviously, the move to the circular economy from a linear economy is a very complex economic model shift, which you will be well aware of. But the role of the business community within that is about responding to market demands, responding to uh, boards and shareholders and so on and so forth. And every agile business will want to know about emerging trends and things that they need to take action on. And absolutely, without any hesitation of a doubt, climate has been in the room it's not necessarily been in the room at the volume it's in the room at now but it was already in the room some 10 years ago and when we started our conversations you could already see businesses in the lights of the Netherlands coming through with new disruptive business models and that's the kind of thing that the business community wants to know about and actually get ahead of the curve on.
0: Yeah. So what did you guys do then in Glasgow when you saw that opportunity what was the, the next steps for you to, to make Glasgow go on this circular route?
4: Well, uh, as a, aside from an intuitive response to we knew there was an opportunity there, we obviously had to get into systematic mode. So the very first thing we did was uh, actually create a partnership between Zero Waste Scotland, who uh, supported us with uh, European funding initially, but brought alongside our own core city stakeholder, Glasgow City Council, and our partners in the Netherlands, the Circle Economies, who brought that market expertise to the table. And we sat down and actually just asked the question, where do we start? Yeah. Because that, that actually in itself, and I don't want to, to, to make that sound like a small thing to say, where to begin was a huge question. So the very first thing we did was scan the city to look at what were the opportunities going in and out of the city in terms of a circular economy approach. And that got us on a journey and it allowed us to start a process.
0: Yeah, but I think that's an absolutely a huge question. So, I mean, where did you start? You obviously, you you scanned. What happened after that then, based on on scanning and understanding the city's flows and whatnot?
4: Well, the the city, Glasgow Glasgow Chamber of Commerce, a Sunday name is Glasgow Chamber of Commerce and Manufacturers. And manufacturing and engineering is a huge component part of our economic infrastructure in the city. So we decided to look at manufacturing in the first instance because One of the other biggest areas was healthcare and education. And we do have influence and opportunity to negotiate in those spaces as well. But we had more opportunity to have traction in manufacturing. So because it was manufacturing, that allowed us to go into the subsectors of manufacturing. And the circular economy brought into the room for us some examples of where it was happening in different ways in other cities. So toast, ale, for example, in London came about because of waste bread. Uh, turning it into a high value added beer. And that was the thing that actually lit the fire, metaphorically speaking, in Glasgow, because a business that was involved in brewing and a baker with morning rolls that were being left over every day saw the opportunity and went ahead and collaborated and started on that journey of craft beer. And that then got people going, oh... Because people weren't thinking like that. So it was a disruptive sort of thought process, but a very clear example of local businesses who were doing it to kickstart that movement. And much of what we will talk about here is movement, a movement in the circular economy. So
0: how far then have you guys come after? It's a great example, by the way, between the, uh, the beer and the bread. But how far have you guys come now in Glasgow to date?
4: Well, I think in terms of awareness raising, we've played an absolutely instrumental role in awareness raising. In terms of business change, there has been some. We didn't set off with benchmarks at the very beginning. But what I can tell you is that over the last five, six years, well over 850 businesses have been engaged in a circular Glasgow discussion in some form, whether it's a one-to-one business engagement on looking at a circular assessment in the business right through to attending workshops or doing a business-to-business knowledge transfer. We have a partnership with London, so we work with the London businesses as well. So at the end of the day, there are many ways that businesses can engage in what the circular economy is about.
0: So Glasgow has been working in a few different ways to get them on the road to climate neutrality and ultimately circularity by 2045. One of those has been international trade. The UN Climate Summit, COP26, was held in Glasgow in 2021 and they used this to get Scottish innovators talking to multinationals about the circular innovations they have, sharing best practice, but also pitching ideas.
4: So it was global brands from Porsche, Scottish Power and so on and so forth, all in the room, exchanging good practice on how they'd embraced either sustainable measures and or circular economy measures, depending on the type of business they were. We had um, a whole cluster of Glasgow businesses involved in that discussion. So there were various elements to the, the ambition behind that. One was, number one, helping Glasgow businesses do international trade better, but also allowing them to showcase what they are doing alongside our other major corporate companies that we've been able to engage with through our other British Chambers of Commerces. So it allowed us to focus and bring those businesses together with a very sole purpose that we're already very focused on as a chamber. But with that specific message of how is international trade going to be affected by a transition to a circular economy? Yes. And
0: then did you have Glasgow based companies that have been innovating that then were effectively creating leads for them to speak to these multinationals to say, look, we can we can offer you something here?
4: Absolutely. And we are on the brink of some really incredible announcements of businesses who are actually doing just that. I can't tell you what they are right now because they're commercially confidential, but at the end of the day, there are. One such business that was involved is the Scottish Leather Group, and they are now broadcasting that they are almost 100% circular. Now, they're 200 years old. It's a leather business. Most of the leather you'll sit on in planes and some of their top range cars. That comes from Glasgow.
0: Another area that Glasgow has been working with is looking at how to activate young people.
4: Because the young people are all avidly passionate about climate, as you know. And what we wanted to do was say, how do we enable those young people through the education system to find out the jobs that are starting to be designed, because they're all emerging as the businesses are pivoting to tackle climate, particularly in circular economy, to get game ready so that when they come out of the schools, that they are able and know of the opportunities that they can take on board to come into the workplace and make a real difference on the ground in a real business that is taking really responsible action, particularly in circular economy, but also in wider renewables uh, industries as well. So those are the kind of things we started to look at in COP.
0: If you look at Glasgow now, then what's the next step for, for Glasgow, do you think, on this circular
4: road? Well, I mean, the city's, have said already, the city's aiming to get to 2045 as a circular city, which is a massive, massive ambition. And I can speak probably on behalf of the collective ambition of Glasgow. Is, it is a very ambitious city. The city has put these targets on the table and we will take them very seriously and continue to do so. There is a circular economy route map that the city has done, which the Chamber worked in partnership with them to support them to do. So we had an influential, influential role in that alone. And that is being delivered now by our council partners. Um, and I think really moving forward, the biggest questions from, from my point of view are how do we scale? I mean, it's the most throwaway word ever, but how do we actually scale the activity that we're seeing happening? Because it's that through bold leadership that's going to be so important. Now, one
0: thing that Glasgow is doing is not trying to make all of Glasgow go circular at once, but pick out areas and work on those.
4: So we're talking about cities. a giant place, clearly. But sometimes that can be quite daunting. So how do you look at an innovation district or an airport uh, as a destination and how do you integrate all of those actors in a way? So we, we've started to do that in Glasgow to find a, how to break down a systemic shift approach because that's key. Okay. So you're picking, I love like, the Stockholm you're, example.
0: You're picking neighbourhoods or districts and thinking, OK, let's make this area circular to start with.
4: Yes. And yes. actually, how do we do that? So most of them are already looking at being climate neutral. But actually, if you were going to look at it as entirety and all the actors within that district, borough, destination if they're all independently behaving in a circular way, how do they collectively then behave in a circular way to make that district or area a circular proposition?
0: This idea of picking out a location and developing it is something that the city of Copenhagen is also doing and that's where we're headed now. That's the Danish national anthem. But you knew that, right? Copenhagen has started developing a part of the city that will become an entire village. And they're incorporating every one of the UN's 17 sustainable development goals into the construction of the village. So we
5: want to create a project which took a holistic approach and not just look at sustainability, but also looked at how we can improve communities and health of the people who live there.
0: Martin Schulz-Nielsen is responsible for this project from the developer's side of things. His company, NREP, aims to be climate neutral by 2028. So a project like
5: this is right up their street. But of course, that doesn't mean it's easy. Well, we used it to force ourselves to have this holistic perspective on this project. When you talk with an engineer or an architect or an investment person, they will focus on each specific areas. But we really want to force ourselves to to have the holistic perspective.
0: So not just a few low-carbon buildings, but also a place that promotes health and well-being and community for everyone who lives there. The village itself is five buildings housing around 1,000 people.
5: So each of the 17 SDGs we grouped into health, community, and then the four more sustainable related themes, which are materials, biodiversity, water and energy. So for example, water, One of the fourteenth SCG is, is is life below water. So uh, we, we, we build on land, uh, but still we, we want to integrate the water element. So how do we collect rainwater and how do we make sure that uh, waste-wise, etc., that doesn't um, impact the life below water? And here what we said is that, okay, we have this massive project. Uh, it's actually five different buildings. The easy part would have been just building the same in each five, but what we did here was we say, no, this is going to be a lab. Uh, here, we're going to take upon ourselves to try and, uh, and really push some innovations in the industry. Don't want to just do that in, in one way or direction. We're going to try multiple different directions. So that, that means that, for example, we use different materials on, on the different buildings. So on one, we have focused really a lot on on wood. Uh, on others, we've tried to focus on, okay, how can we on, on, on concrete? We're not going to, we're still going to use that for, for, for some times. In in, in previous projects, also due to the scale, we focused a lot on upcycling. We also did that in UN17, but where it makes sense. So so we really had a focus on, okay, finding solutions which are scalable. At least that's the the, the concept. And then there were a lot of different learnings on, okay, how do we use um, wooden construction? How can we make uh, concrete less carbon intensive? How can we work with our um, facades to make them lighter and, and, uh, and less carbon heavy? Um, so we've been working with, um, with different wood um, solutions uh, and cassettes. We found a solution where we try to reduce the amount of chemicals. To, to to avoid fire, you need to treat it with, 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 with chemicals. We found a way on which you can uh, yeah avoid that. Then we work with uh, we upcycle tiles. We worked with recycled aluminum solution. Yeah, so all that we did on the facade on we, we've used so CLT, so, so, so timber construction. We, we are building the tallest uh, timber construction in Denmark. Um, then we actually also looked at concrete. And here we um, we had a discussion with, with a big supplier of cement called Old Portland. They had developed a new solution called Future SEM, uh, which has a 30% saving on, on carbon emissions they were almost apologetic, well, it's going to cost you more. Okay, but yes, that's okay, but tell us about it. How, how, how can we can, uh, does it make sense in the end uh, if you get at scale, uh, and how can we implement into the project? And that has actually led to that they're now pricing their future SEMP solution. Uh, at the same price as the normal cement industry, and we were really one of the first who really took that in at scale in, 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 in a project.
0: So, what would you say you've learned now from this UN 17 village? What were the uh, what's worked? What could have been better?
5: Uh, really thinking through the innovation process um, and 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 figuring out okay, this is not going to be a normal project. Getting the right team and, and aligning expectations—that okay, this is going to be more difficult. This is not going to be the way that we normally do things because we are an industry which is quite risk-averse, and for good reason. I mean, it's it's huge projects uh, which is which are super complex uh, and which cost a lot. Uh, so therefore, as an industry, that uh, there is a natural tendency to doing okay, what works instead of trying to uh, to take uh, unnecessary risks.
0: So we've heard a lot of really interesting and inspiring examples from Turku in Finland to Glasgow and the UN17 village in Copenhagen. These are the kind of examples that help change people's mindsets. And changing people's mindsets is another one of those keys to preventing overshoot day. Amanda Bornica is a circular economy specialist at Suiko and she works with this.
6: One of my favourite examples is to talk about uh, uh, second-hand uh, bedsheets. Usually I ask that to my audience when I'm doing a lecture. So I ask them, uh, please everyone raise a hand if you could consider buying bedsheets secondhand. And usually it's one or two percent of okay. the audience okay. that like, yeah, I can uh, maybe <laughs> consider that. But what if I put the question like this instead? Now I want you to raise your hand if you ever stayed in a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and there is not one hand that is not raised when I ask that question. And that's so what I'm trying to say here. That mind shift is exactly the same. How can we go from just thinking the most repulsive thing ever is to buy a bedsheet secondhand to to be thinking that it's a luxury to check into a hotel and stay in that bed? That's like something that I uh, treat myself with. Sure. And how do we get that mind shift when we are planning cities?
0: What can cities do today to take action? I mean, what, is there anything that you know any city could jump on right now
6: uh, to track, trace, and connect the waste? Like the first thing a city can do is just make that waste visible. To just connect that waste into a system where everyone can see what kind of resources exist where in the city, then it gets much easier to understand what kind of resources that I can build in in the system again instead of just buying new stuff. So it's really going from creating systems that makes the city go from a consumer to a circulant because that's kind of the key here. Maybe even if it's a waste for me, it's probably a resource for someone else. So now when I see these huge trucks and containers with bricks that are a bit dusty, they don't have their corners left, and we just transport them not to be uh, even recycled. We just put them in the ground. But that's not, I don't see bricks anymore. I see uh, bricks of gold, gold bars. And we're just throwing away all this money and these resources where we can build in somewhere else. So it's
0: a real mind shift change then to where we look at waste as something highly valuable. We should be treating it like gold as opposed mm. to treating it like, like waste. Then.
6: Yeah, exactly. Like I see the concept of waste shifting the upcoming uh, one year or two years in Europe. I'm not sure that we're going to have the same uh, definition of what waste is in the upcoming years. And that would really... Uh, change all the laws and regulation about waste as well to make that more accessible.
0: Back at the Stockholm Resilience Centre, Owen Gaffney is calling for countries to appoint a chief engineer, someone who can look at what the nation needs to do as a whole to enable this colossal transformation.
2: You know, back in the Industrial Revolution in the uh, 1800s in the UK, you know, there was an incredible engineer, Ismbar Kingdom Brunel, who basically built the railway systems and bridges and the the steel ships, the infrastructure, the network that created the Industrial Revolution. And I think we need something that now is the moment for that. We need uh, huge amounts of infrastructure in the world for this energy transformation, for the transformation of cities, for the agricultural transformation, and we need to connect the brilliant engineering minds and architectural minds with the finance community to make it work financially. And we need to do it very, very rapidly. You know, every country needs it. Every city needs it. They need plans for for 2050, 2070, 2100, um, and they need to be sustainable. So I would love to see you know chief engineers appointed who can can drive. That vision can bring together the engineering and technologists for the the train systems, the wind and solar systems that we need for the sustainable city systems to bring those visions together, and then to connect that with the finance community to um, to accelerate it. And that that means thinking differently about engineering as well. You know, thinking about having cities that can be tinkered with. That you know, you know, 50, 60 years from now, how can this bit of infrastructure evolve into something else? Um, so that that kind of vision we need um, and you know and things like sponge cities as well you know instead of just channeling water um, away how do you actually use the water that's coming into a city and how's that going to change over the next few decades um, and how can how can that be absorbed by a city how can you build build for that kind of resilience there's a lot of brilliant ideas out there
0: what does Alison McRae in Glasgow think of that one then
4: I love that. And I I love that for lots of reasons, because Glasgow would like to support that ambition because we are an engineering city at our heart in many respects. So I suppose I'd compliment that to say um, one of the other areas that definitely needs exploited and and proactively pursued now is is around the creative industries. And I really believe passionately that creative industries have got a huge role to help us all in this journey and a suite of actors who can come in with a totally different perspective on how to look at changing us into a circular economy. So perhaps even having a chief designer uh, would be a good ambition as well to complement the Stockholm suggestion.
0: And we're back with you, Andreas uh Suiko's Head of Sustainability. Look, we've heard some really interesting stories, really inspiring uh, stories from various cities but we've also heard about the enormity of this transformation to change our world, to be circular, so that we, we don't have an overshoot day in the future. Where do you stand on this? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Or, 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 or how do
1: you... <laughs> It depends. It, it varies from day to day, I would say. Uh, I think that we're on, on a good track, but we're also in a hurry. So in that sense, we, we, have, we know the problem now. And, and look, at a couple of generations back, we didn't really knew that this problem existed. So even though things are getting worse, we we are in a good position that we have all the tools to fix it. But uh, maybe in in one or two generations, it will be a bit too late. So that puts a lot of responsibility on on this generation. But I'm optimistic working at Sweco. I know that we we have the tools to to really start to fix things going on here. So, uh, yeah, that's what I work for. And that gives meaning into, into the daily work.
0: Thanks very much, Andreas. Thank you. You've been listening to the Urban Insight podcast from Suico. If you have any questions or feedback, please mail to urbaninsight at suicogroup.com. Thanks for listening.